with her first wages, she'd saved up and she'd bought a beautiful Burberry raincoat. Now, a high-value fashion item, and she was proud of this coat. It was dark on the outside, but it had the familiar Burberry tartan check on the collar. And she thought this was the absolutely the last one. That was the first big item of clothing that she'd saved up and bought. And he goes to pick up the baggage and he finds that it is the dead body of a girl, a blonde girl, lying a hundred yards into his field, gagged, bound with a ligature round her neck and lying face down on top of what looks like a very new Burberry coat. It's very hard now, Simon, to remember, after all these years, all the things we didn't do and didn't know back in the 1970s. But the truth is that you and I started out in the police service with pencils and notebooks, with fingerprints, with handwriting samples, with hairs and fibres, and with very, very rudimentary blood typing. And we ended our police service with supercomputers, with lasers, and with ultra-sophisticated low-copy DNA analysis. And in that 37 years that spanned the World's End murders and the final solution to them, we travelled through several epochs of criminal investigation in forensic science. Possibly, Tom, that period of time that you're talking about, those 37 years, not just within the police service, but society in general, has seen more change as far as technology is concerned than the whole of history before that. Very much so. And the remarkable thing about this case, the bit that always strikes me, if there was a nut of this case, it's the fact that the evidence that was gathered and was retained in 1977 was done to such a high quality that all those years later, in the brilliant new science that was available in 2013, that evidence was able to give up his secrets. And that's a remarkable testimony to the forensic scientists who worked on that case and who secured that evidence in the first instance. It is breathtaking if you think of it in that way. It really is, because it's easy with hindsight, Tom, isn't it? It's easy to look back to 37 years, 30 years, and say, well, obviously you would keep this and do that and do the next thing. But the preservation, as we'll find out as we discuss uh, this inquiry and the other inquiries linked to it thereafter, that wasn't the commonplace throughout the police forces of the country to preserve evidence like that. You obviously had exceptional people working there doing things that weren't like the Ruxton case. The stuff that went on then was uncharted territory. It was instinctive. It was intuitive and so clever that it changed the face of forensic policing thereafter. The World's End Murders, Tom, and again, I have to tell our listeners how lucky we are to have you here because with the likes of the World's End Murder, you've written a book on it. I consider you an authority on it. You worked on it on and off at different stages throughout your career. And there's probably few people 
uh, better qualified to talk about the world's end murders and the, the subsequent inquiries thereafter than Tom Wood. So you've set the scene there about that 37 years of inquiry, the longest ever in Scotland, is that correct? The longest ever continuous investigation. There are longer investigations which have started and stopped and started and stopped. But in terms of continuous investigation, World's End still, at 37 years, is the longest continuous investigation. Tom, take us back to the start then, to October evening, 1977, Edinburgh Old Town, the World's End pub. You are a detective sergeant at the time, or uniform. Take us back to what happened on that night. Okay. Well, the first thing to say is that 1977 in Edinburgh was a completely different time to today. And again, it's easy to forget that there were no mobile phones. There was no closed-circuit television. There was no electronic information you could get from telephones or proximity use of mobile phones. In a sense, it was an incredibly primitive time. It was also a time of great change because Edinburgh was a, an old, grey, very conservative city. It had been pretty run down during the war. But as the 1960s turned into the 1970s, it started to brighten up. And one of the things that happened was young women started to become liberated. And young women started, for the first time really, to go out and about on their own into pubs. And the nightlife of Edinburgh was really starting to kick off. Now, prior to that, of course, there'd always been the old pubs and clubs of the Royal Mile and Rose Street and all the rest of it. But it was still, even in the swinging 60s, somewhat unusual to see young girls go around on their own and escorted. Let me put this in a wee bit of perspective then, just in case we ever attract any younger listeners who are under 60. But I was a boy in the 60s. I was a, a youth. I was born in 1959, so that puts it in perspective. Horsell Park in Glasgow, as a teenager, I remember that my mother would never have been seen in a public house without my father. And if she was with my father, they would be in a lounge. A woman would never be seen in a public bar. And that made me sound very strange. But that's the way it was in the 60s and early 70s as I remember it. So that puts into a wee bit of perspective what you're saying there, that girls hadn't enjoyed the freedoms that they were starting to enjoy in the 70s. No, that's right. It was a time of great change. Now, Helen and Christine, Helen Scott and Christine Eady, were two 17-year-old girls, both born in 1960, within a few months of each other. And they'd been friends for life. They'd been friends since they were at nursery school. And they'd come up and they'd gone to the same primary and same secondary school. Everything they did together. They left school together when they were 16 and they both set out into the big world of, of work. And Christine fancied herself as some sort of secretarial role and she started a job learning to be a typist. But Helen always wanted to be involved in childcare. She had a younger brother who she doted on and she saw herself as being a nursery nurse or a primary school teacher in the phones of time. So that was the trajectory they were on. There were two young, very innocent girls. And we always treated their deaths as child murders because they were children. And you can see that in the photographs of them. There's a striking image of them, the pair of them together, taken a week or so before they disappeared and uh, which hung on our squad walls for over 30 years as a reminder to us 
that what her duties were as regards selling Christine. But you can see it in that photograph. Christine's a bit feisty. She's got a little bit of eye makeup on and she's trying to look the business. But Helen is just a big tomboy, which is exactly what she was. Not a scrapper, a makeup on her, a big smiling, fair haired lassie, just setting out in life. And what they did and what we did as teenagers, and you'll remember this, Simon, very well, is on a Saturday night or a Friday night, you went out and about into the pubs to meet people. There was no social media, so the only way that you got together, the only way you socialised, was if you actually went out and met people. And so that's what they set out to do. Now, they were all dressed in their best finery, and Helen, particularly, with her first wages, she'd saved up and she bought a beautiful Burberry raincoat. Now, a high-value fashion item, and she was proud of this coat. It was dark on the outside, but it had the familiar Burberry tartan check on the collar. And she thought this was the absolutely the last one. That was the first big item of clothing that she'd saved up and bought. She thought she looked fabulous in it, and she did. And they set out, the two of them, on the town. And the sport in these days, when you were 17 years old, was to go into a pub and try and convince the barman you were 18. <laughs> yeah. And try and get yourself a, a half pint or a glass of wine or whatever, or a baby sham, a baby sham. <laughs> but some people don't know what a baby sham is. And sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they didn't. And of course, sometimes the barman would say, you're too young, get away. And other times the barman would take a view and say, oh, you'd have a drink. Saturday the 15th of October, 1977, Helen and Christine set out for a night on the town, but they wanted to get back early because they both had plans the next day. So it wasn't going to be a late night. So they set out and they went up to various pubs in Princess Street. Sometimes they got a drink and sometimes they didn't. They went to the high street. And in the process of that, they met up with groups of friends who were all doing the same thing. Yeah. And eventually, about half past nine at night on the Saturday night, they ended up in the World's End pub which is halfway down the high street between Edinburgh Castle and Holyrood Palace. And World's End pub was then and is now a kind of a touristy pub. It doesn't have a lot of local clientele because it's on the sort of Royal Mile and it's called the World's End because it's situated right at the point where the Flodden Wall finished for the city of Edinburgh. And after the the Battle of Flodden, I don't want to digress too far, but after the Battle of Flodden, which was a disastrous defeat for the Scots, of course, by the, by the English, most of the big cities had to fortify themselves yeah. to protect them from what they thought would be an English invasion, which in fact never came. And so this was the Flodden Wall, and there were gates in the Flodden Wall. For instance, one of the gates was the South Port. Now, we'll talk about the South Port later on when we speak about Birkenhead. But this was the gate that separated the city, the fortified, secure city of Edinburgh, with the outside world. And it literally was the world's end. So the fortified part is the part towards the Buckingham territory, towards the castle, if you like. Yes. yes. You can still see remnants of the Flodden Wall down St Mary Street near the world's end. You still see sections of it. There's still sections of it there. It just took in the old town of Edinburgh round the Edinburgh Castle and the Grassmarket and the Westport. That was all that was really 
defensible. Right. And so they built the flooding wall. So the gate, when you go out with the flooding wall, when you leave that gate, you leave the civilized world. You no longer have the protection. So that's actually on the M8, but I'll explain that to you later. Yes, that's at Hart Hill. Ah. Get to know that. <laughs> so that's where the pub gets its name. It's a, it's a tourist pub. And at that time, it was very common for people to do pub crawls. They would go up to the top of the, the Royal Mile to the Ensign Europe, which is named after the man who captured the Eagle Standard at Waterloo. And they would drink in pubs all the way down to Holyrood Palace. And the idea was that you had a, if you were really brave, you had a pint. Oh, and, and if you were a bit more cautious than a half pint in all of these pubs. What time would the pubs close at that time, Tom? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, okay. 10 o'clock closing. You might remember that in these days, uh, it was 10 o'clock closing. There was 10 or 15 minutes drinking up time given, but the pubs had to be empty by 10.30. Last orders, quarter to 10, something like that. Last orders, quarter to 10, and the pubs had to be emptied by 10.30. And there were few late licences beyond that time. I don't know about Edinburgh, but uh, certainly in parts of Dargyle and whatnot, a Saturday night was sacrosanct because you were going into the Sabbath. So there was no licences given out after midnight on a Saturday night, certainly in Argyle. That's right. Very much on a Saturday night, everything had to stop. Dances and everything had to stop well before midnight. So anyway, Helen and Christine get there to the world's end about half nine. And by this time, they're in a company of friends. There's about six or seven people in the group, all of whom they know. And they're in the busy pub and people are coming and going. It's one of these places that people come and go and not stay all night. People are coming and going. Now, very importantly, Helen and Christine have had a drink, but were not drunk, right? At no time were they drunk. You'll also remember this time, we didn't have the money to get drunk. (laughs) So 10 o'clock closing comes, and it's seen that Helen and Christine are in conversation with two young men who the rest of their pals don't know. They are strangers. And they are very accurately described, these young men. And one of the striking features about them was that they both had short hair. Now, that was very unusual in that time, because the 1970s was the time of the big moustaches and everybody had long hair. Policemen had long hair after Curl up under their hats. So these two men are well described as chatting away to Helen and Christine, but nothing overly. They're just chatting. They're just in the same company. So closing time comes, and the men are described as being short-haired and fashionably dressed, but their clothes are fashionable, but just not quite up to date. Not just absolutely the latest of fashions. This will be significant later. They were also described as speaking with what is described as country accents. Now, of course, with hindsight, if that was the case now, we would have a facility to play to witnesses numerous local accents to try and pin that down better. But at that time, we didn't have these things, which is one of the things we didn't have. And these two men were described as strangers, short-haired, clean and tidy, wearing fashionable, but not the last word in fashionable clothes, and with country accents, meaning that they're out of towners. They're not locals. And their last scene, Helen and Christine come out of the pub and there's a lot of chat with their pals about, is anybody going to have a party? Because this was the other thing that happened in these days, which you remember, is after the pubs closed. So they all went back to somebody's flat and they tried to scrounge a carry out for some, for somewhere and 
they put on the record player and, and the dancing and stuff. But Helen and Christine said, no, we've got to get home. and uh, We want to get home. We don't want to miss the last bus. We've got stuff to do tomorrow. So we're not going to come to any of the parties. And the whole contents of the pub spilled out onto the high street and they all made their way away home. Very slowly, John. We used to say the best policeman in the world was the rain at that time of night because they all hang about trying to make the night last longer. Where did the girls live? Did they live in the same area? They used to live in the same area at primary school, but Christie's family had moved. So they actually lived some distance away, quite a substantial bus ride away. But what they often did was they often both went home to one of their houses and stayed the night. Yep. And this was a sort of common occurrence. So they left, they weren't going to the party, they left and they were last seen heading down St Mary Street, which is the street that runs off the Royal Mile down southwards. It's a, a long steep hill down there. And they're last seen heading away there amongst a group of other people, including these two young men. Tom, I need to ask you because th- those kind of hotspots like, like the World's End where all the strangers coming in and out all night, was there a police van sitting in the vicinity? Was there a police officer's night shift or back shift, for that matter, in the vicinity watching kids going home? Yes, the night shift. As you'll remember, the night shift always saw to the dispersal of the pubs. It was one of the first things they did. Yeah. And so there were beat men. They are foot beat men. We, it was a system of foot beats in that area and the night shift. For the most part of the night, we used to patrol alone. But between 10 o'clock and midnight, while there was a lot doing on the streets, the policemen would, from the two adjoining foot beats, would join up together and see to what they called pub dispersal. And if the pub was still busy, the uniformed officer would put his head in the door and say, Barman, time you're closing. And of course, the barman were delighted because they could say, there's the police want you out, you better go, you better go. That was the way it was done. And it was recognised in a very non-scientific way that if you were going to have fights and trouble, then there would be flashpoints outside the pubs and the police were there to make sure that didn't happen. And so there were police officers there who saw him coming out and who later on recognised the two girls, Helen and Christine. Helen, taller, bigger girl, mop of blonde hair, wearing her Burberry coat, and Christine, a smaller girl, neater, with, when I say neater, a smaller figured girl, shorter, smaller, with dark hair. And they saw them coming out and they saw them heading down St Mary Street in a company of people, and that was it. They disappeared into the night and they were never seen alive again. Okay, so they reported missing the next morning. I presume their parents maybe assumed that one had gone with each other, if you know what I mean. That's right. When they didn't come home at 11 o'clock, both sets of parents thought, oh, Ellen's folks thought it must be staying at Christine, thought it must be staying at Ellen's. That was fine. That was what quite often happened. And so there was no alarm at all until the next morning. About 10 o'clock in the morning, Rain Scott, Helen's dad, phoned Christine's house to say, where's Helen? Oh, she's not here. We thought she was with you. And it was then that the alarm was raised. Now, it's not uncommon for young people to stay out all night at a party. But Helen and Christine were children. They hadn't stayed out all night at a party. So it was very, very unusual. It was not a regular occurrence. And so about 11 o'clock in the morning, um, Maureen Scott phoned the police headquarters to report the two girls as missing. And clearly, he must have expressed his concern about them and about this behaviour, which was not at all typical, because the police took 
the reports of the two missing girls, along with full descriptions, and immediately broadcast them, and immediately allocated a CID officer to have a look at it, because they were considered to be vulnerable because of their age. Right. Because 17 was younger then. That's the truth of the matter, Tom, isn't it? Well, very much so, and and Helen particularly. You just need to take a look at their photograph, and you'll see what I mean. She was a child. Where were you at this time, Tom? I was coming on back, Chef. I was two o'clock start. I'd just been transferred into CID, but we had a system there whereby all new uh, CID officers, new sergeants, were put into what they called the CID main office, which was the sort of admin centre for the CID. And the CID had a 24-hour operation at that time where they used to run their own little control room from police headquarters. So there was a CID main office allocating jobs, and looking after the allocation of cars and all of this sort of stuff. And dealing with telexes from other forces and communication from other forces was very important at that time too, because, of course, no computers. So telexes and the police gazette and all of these things that came in for other forces they had to be carefully scrutinised to see whether there was any implications for your force. I was in, in that job, and it was also a, a rite of passage. It was a sort of... You know, We'll put you there until we think that you're fit enough to be let out in the public. You know? Just as an aside, can you tell me the divisions in Edinburgh? Of course, it's all changed now, but in these days, there was four city divisions and there was three county divisions. So there were seven divisions in all. The city was divided into the south side, which is A division, the north side, which was B division. There was Leith, which was D division, but which was always known as Leith because it had been a separate force in a separate place and and it still is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there was the West End, which took in Murrayfield and Pink Castle and out to the city boundary. And then there was West Lothian, there was East and Mid Lothians, which were one division, and then there was the borders. And the borders was as different, again, to the kind of policing and the kind of demographic as chalk and cheese. So Lothian and Borders Police had just been formed in 1975, and, and really by 1977, it was still a work in progress, and there had been some transfer, interchange of personnel. But you remember from your own days, you joined uh, Strathclyde Police 10 years after it was formed, but it was still a work in progress for a long, long time. 78, I joined, I think it was three years old or something, Tom, was it not? Sorry, 78, sorry. The forces were amalgamated in 75. Yeah, but that amalgamation takes 10 years, at least. It's still going on with Police Scotland. I had this conversation with the cop. Uh, just yesterday with a sergeant in Govan, and she was telling me that uh, the differences across Scotland are absolutely incredible. She's a traffic officer, and obviously they're moving across boundaries. I joined Strathclyde. I remember I had a theft up in Carradale, which is about 12 miles north of Campbelltown, and there was a cop there, Willie Robertson, who's long gone now. He'd 30-odd years service then. I caught these guys that were breaking into caravans, and I went back to the police station, which was his house, basically with a wee office attached to it. And I said to him, Roy, have you got any production labels? Oh, production labels. <laughs> I heard them shout the wife, and he came back with these labels that were old Argyle production labels. So he he never joined Strathclyde Police, ever. Yeah, I had lots of cops used to speak Gaelic. And you never knew what they were talking about. But the, the excuse was, if you don't use it, you lose it some. Yeah, I get an idea about loading and borders now, and you were at the CID hub, as you were new to the CID, or 
in that rank, and we're in the afternoon of the disappearance. The girls have dis. No, no, we're not in the afternoon because the girls were reported missing about eleven o'clock, and just about the same time as that, a couple were walking their dog at Gosford Bay, which is in East Lothian, about sixteen miles from the city, on the way down to North Berwick and Dunbar, down that way, beautiful East Lothian countryside. When walking their dog along the beach, it's a narrow beach which the road parts go around a long sweeping bend as you approach a little town of Aberlady. All that area is well known to anybody who plays golf, Muirfield and can spin in all these lovely links courses. Anyway, about 11 o'clock, half 11, this couple are walking their dog and as they're walking along, they see something on the tideline which looks like a tailor's dummy. It looks like a, a mannequin that's been washed up by the sea. Of course, a lot of stuff is washed up by the sea there. But the dog's interested and the dogs run forward. And as they approach it, they see to their absolute horror that it's not a mannequin. It's the body of a young woman lying on her back, clearly dead, hands bound behind her back, feet tied, with a ligature round her neck and a gag in her mouth. Now, again, no mobile phones. So they turn and they run. Back to where the car is parked, a mile or so back, they meet for the nearest telephone call box. And typically, of course, the first one they get is not working. But eventually, they get through and they phone the police, Haddington, which is the nearest big station. And the police attend the scene at Gosford Bay. And just at that time, the circulation of the description of the two missing girls is coming out from the force operations room saying these two girls are missing. And one of the first officers at the scene says, the body of this young woman was found matches one of the girls. So then the question is, of course, it hasn't been identified positively, but if it is one of the girls, where's the other girl? Where's the other one? So when all this is happening, the first scenes of crime unit attends. And here we get really lucky. And for all expertise and experience and whatnot, sometimes... You need a stroke of luck right in these initial phases. And we got very lucky. First of all, we had a, a very good crime scene set up, which was a legacy of the Ruxton case, which you just mentioned. We had a van which was all kitted out with all the stuff to take productions and preserve them, which had been brought in in the 1950s as a legacy of the Ruxton case. And we also had a system whereby we called out mixed teams of people. So we called out police photographers and police fingerprint experts, but we also called out scientists who worked in our laboratory. Police laboratory, again, a legacy of the Ruxton case and all the developments of the 1930s, with a police laboratory on the top floor at FETIS, and it was staffed by scientists who worked there on our behalf, but who were very much independent. The laboratory was regulated by the government. So we got really lucky because the man who was on call that weekend was a young South African fellow, just in his 20s, a biologist called Lester Nibb. An unusual name, Lester Nibb. And Lester Nibb is an unusual person, a biologist, utterly fastidious, meticulous in everything that he does. He's still that way. It's just the way he is. And Lester Nibb attended at the scene and Lester Nibb and his colleagues, he wasn't alone, there was other police staff, there was other scientists there. Lester Nibb attends the scene where the body has been found at Gosford Bay. 
and carries out there a textbook recovery of forensic materials. He takes everything, he bags it, he tags it, he makes sure he takes personal ownership of it, responsibility for it. Everything is done absolutely by the numbers and everything is carefully preserved before the body is taken away to the mortuary. And of course, in the mortuary comes the second part of forensic recovery because that's when, uh, for instance, the bindings and knots and ligatures are taken off, photographed, everything meticulously photographed. And of course, following that, the next day comes the post-mortem examination where swabs are taken from every part of the body. nails everywhere. That's it. All done by the, the numbers and they carefully preserved. Just uh, before we go on there, and this is fascinating stuff, and, and I'm almost, the hair's almost standing up in the back of my neck now listening to you because that preservation of that evidence, that meticulous gathering of that was to prove so important as the years unfolded. But I wanted to go back to the word production because we've used it two or three times. You tell us what a production is. In other parts of the world, it's known as an exhibit, but it's really an item of evidence which is taken by the police. And it's called a production because it's, it, it later on it is often produced uh, to the court as evidence. So that's And there has to be a chain of evidence with the production before it can get to the court. We have to know who, who lifted it, who photographed it. We can get documentary productions. A car can be a production very often. Anything in the world can be a production. And there's a rule in the court that the court wants the best evidence that it can get to be presented to it. So that chain of evidence is important, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. And, and Chris, strangely enough, Chris and I were talking about transference earlier on, about how evidence can be contaminated or scenes can be contaminated and evidence can be transferred, forensic evidence. But we'll come back to all that in other episodes. No, you're dead right. This uh, line of accountability, this audit of where productions have been at any given time and who has had control of them is absolutely crucial. Because if you go to trial 10 years after the event, the first thing a good defence agent, a lawyer, will say is, where has this been then? Could it have been contaminated? And who had control of it? All to quite legitimately sow a seed of doubt. But it's very important that's how we looked after productions. If something had to be bagged, which most of it was, then the bag had to be folded a certain way. You were taught how to do that at your initial training course. And the production label had to be stapled on in a certain way so that there was no chance of contamination or interference. It then had to be signed by two of you in a certain place so that your signatures covered both the label and the part of the bag. And then you had to take wax and matches or a lighter and melt the wax onto the seal and then stamp it. With the, it was a simple visual. It was actually a, a button. That's what I remember it as a button from a tunic that we used to impress onto it, and you could tell instantly if it had been tampered with. All of these sort of defences were set in place because of previous challenges to cases. I remember sitting down to compile my first murder report, and of course what you do is you dig out a previous murder report and see how somebody else did it. And I remember thinking, I wonder why they've mentioned all these things. And of course they were there for a very good reason, because previous cases had fallen at one of these puddles. And so in a murder report, it had to be a belt bracing self-support and trousers. Yep. And in every police report I've ever done or seen, the label number with the number 
inserted and the name of the production. Because what the cop writes on it is what it's called forevermore. Because that's what it is. And that label number, the number, and then the item is a separate line on every report for every production. It's itemized like that for court purposes so that the fiscal, the crown can see exactly what the productions are. And of course, the defense can see what the productions are because they're going to be examined to the nth degree. There's nothing sure. Yeah, funnily enough, and it's amazing how long these things last, because earlier this year, I was cited to appear at the High Court in Aberdeen to speak to statements that I'd taken in 1978, and there was the statement, and there was my signature on it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> is this your signature? Yes, it is. Oh, it's a bit less shaky. <laughs> no, it was a lot firmer then, a lot firmer then. So anyway, we're at Gosford Bay. It's an interesting location. The first thing to say that this was right from the start, we recognised that this was an organised crime scene. There was nothing haphazard disorganised about it. The girl had been tied hand and foot with her own clothes and she'd been placed in a, a location where the driver of a vehicle dumping the body had a good line of sight in both directions and could see any vehicle coming. I mean, you know and I know that most murders are chaotic yeah. scenes. Something horrible has gone wrong, and they're just scenes of absolute chaos. What were the features of the crime scene? Because every locus, every crime scene's got its own stamp, if you like. What was the trademark here? What we'd now recognise as an organised crime scene, in that, that nothing foreign, it's not the usual state of chaos that you see at most murder crime scenes. Nothing foreign had been brought in. A lot of the girls' clothes were missing. The girl on the beach, Christine's clothes were missing. She'd been tied and strangled with her own clothing. So nothing foreign had been brought into the crime scene. And it was all very tidy. And the place that the body had been deposited was interesting too, because it was very clear that anybody stopping there in a vehicle during hours of darkness would be able to see headlights coming from a good distance one way or t'other. There was a wall and a road running close by and what it looked like is she'd been in the back of a vehicle, taken out of a vehicle, and dumped down there out of sight. And all of this was just dawning on us. And of course, we're wondering, the description of this body, of this girl, matches one of the missing girls. Where's the other missing girl? And while we're thinking about that, we got a call which answered that question, but in a, a horrific way. And because a farmer, uh, about four or five miles away, up a small road on the road to Haddington at a place called Coates Farm. I'd been going round his fields as he always did on a Sunday morning. He'd seen what appeared to be a bag of rubbish lying in the stubble field. The harvest had just been cut. It was October. And he goes to pick up the baggage and he finds that it is the dead body of a girl, a blonde girl, lying a hundred yards into his field, gagged, bound, with a, a ligature round her neck and lying face down on top of what looks like a very new Burberry coat. Next time on Crime Time Inc. We've got these two girls, innocent young girls, who are seen alive and well at half past ten 
on the Saturday night and who disappear into the night in and around the company of two strange men who are very well described. And then 12 hours later or so, their bodies are found and they have been brutally murdered, strangled. They have been sexually assaulted. The majority of their clothing, except Helen's coat, has been removed. Anna Kenny, Frances Barker, Hilda McCauley, and Agnes Cooney were all young women who, between the early part of the summer of 1977 and early 1978, were all abducted and murdered in a very similar way to Helen and Christine.